All right, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, you'll need to do that in your own Bibles or in the Blue Bibles, uh, page 265. The passage uh, this morning is not in your bulletins. It's not printed out. It was uh, too long. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter for us this morning. Uh, brothers and sisters, friends, if you think uh, the last couple of weeks have been hard uh, in the story that we've been in with David and Bathsheba. Uh, you're right, uh, but prepare yourselves. Uh, brace, brace, brace. It is about to get worse. Uh, it gets darker in the chapter, and in fact, uh, while this chapter uh, may be the very pit of that darkness, the darkness will actually continue. The misery will continue for uh, a number of chapters here in Second Samuel. And I suppose, I, I know you've heard me say this before, you've heard others say it before, but I suppose it is worth uh, understanding why we take this approach to preaching the word. Why do we go through an entire book such as Second Samuel? Surely there are uh, other things, better things, more joyful things to preach on than, uh, than the text that I'll be reading for us today. And the very reason that we take this approach of basically preaching through on a normal course of our diet these, uh, these books of the Bible is because it forces us. And when I say it forces us, I mean it forces me as a preacher and it forces us as a congregation to hear and to look at portions of the Word of God that frankly we'd more easily turn away from. I would never pick this one out and say, hey, I want to preach on 2 Samuel 13. I've dreaded it since the moment I decided that, no, we need to continue in uh, Samuel and keep preaching here. It, it forces us to look at this and it forces us to look at a passage like this and say, okay, all right, this is the Word of God. What does it have to teach us about our God, about the faith that we have in our Lord, and what does it teach us about our own lives? What are, what, are we are, what are we to do in our lives as a result of looking at this passage today? A brother reminded me in our session meeting this week of the simplicity of a verse that we all know, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And all Scripture includes the Scripture that I'm about to read for us here. Now, before I read this, I've got two other things uh, I want to say. Uh, I will be careful in what I am saying today for the sake of younger ears uh, who may be in the room. I will say the text is brutal enough in itself. Uh, I, I need to be true to what the text says, but I will also try to be as careful as I can be. Uh, secondly, uh, I am always thankful for the resources that I have before me as a pastor when I'm preparing to preach. I look at various commentaries and various tools uh, that are helpful for me. Uh, 
typically speaking, I look, like to look at commentaries that are of a more technical nature because I don't like to have uh, other pastors' words floating around in my head when I'm trying to figure out what God would have for us on a particular Sunday. But I am particularly thankful for two writers that I've been using often, and frankly, that I've quoted often, so you should be at least familiar with their names, for Ralph Davis uh, and for Rick Phillips, whom many of you actually know. Uh, I'm thankful for their insights and, uh, in particular, for their help in working through a text like the one that we've got before us. With that, this then is the word of God exposing the wickedness of the heart of man. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now, just point of reference here. So, so, so the relationship between Amnon and Tamar, or Amnon and Absalom, is half siblings. Uh, same father, David, different mothers. But Absalom and Tamar have the same mother, as well as, of course, David the father. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, Say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes and she took the pan and emptied it out before him but he refused to eat and Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother. For this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. 
Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So a servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let not all of us go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but he gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have, not, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, he, this, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Telmeh, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. That's a complicated little verse. We'll look at that one next week. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, here we are before you called together as your people, a church that you have knitted together by the power of your spirit applying to us the work of Jesus Christ, and you have given to us this word. It is a living word. It is an active word. We pray that today 
you would use it to accomplish the purposes for which you have sent it. Do not allow it to fall to the ground and be eaten and snatched away, but instead, we pray that you would use it appropriately in each one of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There may be some of you who are here in this room this morning who have experienced the abuse, the violence, even the rape that is described in this text. Uh, or perhaps it was in some other form. Perhaps you've experienced something more like the abuse of power and position and in essence, a rape as well that we saw of David and Bathsheba. And if that is the case, if that is so, then uh, we grieve with you. And if that is the case, then with you, we long for and we hope for justice. Justice that would come in this world, and if not in this world, then we hope with you for the justice that will come in the world to come. And our hope for you and with you is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, who himself suffered indignity, violence, shame, and death at the hands of lawless men, our hope is that the good news that he proclaimed and the good news that he purchased will comfort you. Will comfort you in this world as it surely will in the world to come. Where the tears that are yours will be wiped away and taken away. In this chapter, the misery continues the consequences of sin of which we spoke last week continue and they multiply. The sins of the father become the sins of the sons. The wickedness that dwells and can grow in our desperately sick hearts is on full display in this passage. And once again, we have a passage that shows us the truthfulness of James 1, 14 through 15. We looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago with David and Bathsheba, and I want to read it again for us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Amnon, lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And it brings forth death, literally, physically, and it brings forth death that is spiritual as well, and it brings forth all of the things, all of the misery that accompanies death. All of the hatred and all of the envy and all of the violence. But our passage, of course, today is certainly 
not unique in demonstrating this truth. David's sin against both Uriah and Bathsheba fits the same pattern, even if the particulars of that incident are slightly different than this one. Or think for a moment of the parallels that exist here with Genesis 3 and 4 and our passage. Of course, in Genesis chapter 3, it's Eve who takes what was forbidden. She takes of the tree and, and takes of the fruit and eats of it. She gives some to her husband, to Adam, who also takes of it, and he eats of it as well. And in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, one son kills the other son. Okay, so in our passage, David took what did not belong to him, and immediately after that, we read of one son's death and another son being born. And then immediately after that, we see one son killing another son after a heinous act has taken place. And I hope and I pray that this event is abhorrent to every single one of us who are here. I hope we look at this and are just sickened by what we have read. It should be. It should be abhorrent for us. But as much as we might look at this, the act of it, we, we, we also have to look at this passage, and, and I pray that none of us have been guilty of this kind of violence, abuse, incestuous rape. But we can look at this passage, and if we're honest, we can recognize something here something that is similar because the seed of evil that is described here is a seed of evil that is in each one of us and if unchecked it will yield all sorts of strange and awful fruit that takes place in our lives god willing not to this extreme god willing but this happens Right? This isn't just an old word. This isn't just, oh, well, bad things happened long ago, a thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, pardon me. Bad things like this happen in this world. And so the passage that we've got for us today falls in the category of a warning. As we in the New Testament read this and look back upon it, it is a warning. 1 Corinthians 10.6, a passage that we also looked at a few weeks back, says this, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This took place as an example for us. It's written down as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Let me read you another passage from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 says this, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Read everything that's in our text. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a warning. It's a warning that is put out there. 
It is the language of warning. It is stated clearly, this is a warning. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so this morning, if this is a warning, if this passage is a warning, then what I want to do is I want to spend a few minutes exploring what we're being warned against, against what we're being warned. And then, and then when, we, when we look at that, I want us to take the passage after having done that, I want us to flip it over. Because if we've been warned against something, by implication, the other side of that is what we should do, is an exhortation to what we should do. Don't do this, do something else. And so we're going to look at those two sides of this text here for a few moments. First though, what's the object or what are the objects of the warning? What are we being warned not to do in this text? I'm going to give three, though there are more, uh, and I'm sure all of us in looking at the text could come up with more than these three. So here's the first thing we're being warned against. First, I don't want to bury the lead. We are being warned against sexual immorality. Rape and incest are despicable. They are despicable violations of personhood, of home, of family, of covenant, of the law of God and of the love of God. From Tamar's own lips, from Tamar's own lips, she's the only one who speaks with any kind of wisdom at all in this passage. From her own lips, we see this stated clearly in verses 12 and 13 of our passage. She says, no, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Parenthetically, let me deal with that last phrase for a moment so that it doesn't become a stumbling block for us. Tamar there is saying one of two things when she's saying talk to the king. She's either looking for an immediate escape from the situation. That's possible. If, if I delay this action right now, we can stop this action. David won't really agree to this, uh, but I'm going to say this to try and get out of this situation. That could be it. It could also be she's looking for a mitigation. That if nothing else, if David were to say yes to it, which might say something about the character of David, if he were to say yes to it, it at least mitigates apart from the kind of violence that we're about to see in this text. But nevertheless, what she says is absolutely clear. This is an outrageous thing. It will bring devastation. It will bring humiliation. It will bring misery and shame on both of them. So there's no question that the act, the actual act of incestual rape is abhorning, abhorrent. And the warning is, don't do that. Do not do this thing. But what this text makes clear, as was clear in the case, if we turned back to it, to David with Bathsheba, and as is crystal clear in the New Testament, what it makes clear is that the sin isn't confined to the act itself. The act doesn't just spring out of thin air. Rather, 
The sin is lodged in the heart. The sin starts in the heart. It finds its seedbed in the ground of the heart, in the desire of the heart for that which is evil. The desire itself is wicked and evil. It is the sin within us that flows out of original sin, from the estate of sin into which humanity fell. This is the sin, if we want to use the old word, a word that we used when we were looking at the PCA's study on human sexuality, whatever it was last year or the year before. It is the sin of concupiscence. It is the sin of, of evil desires, of lust and of covetousness are various ways that that idea can be translated. And then, of course, what happens in our text, we recognize a pattern like this. There's a cuddling. There's a nurturing of the evil desire itself. The idea is the, the, the desire itself is not stamped out. And so what results from that is this growth that starts coming up, this planning and scheming that takes place all of that is evil and wicked as well. And this, I think, is where this in particular hits home for all of us. As I said, I hope that no one in this room has ever committed rape or incest. But who, whom among us, would try to proclaim that our desires have never gone astray, that our desires have never gone amok. And we live in a culture, we live in a culture that takes these sinful desires that are within us and it feeds them. And in fact, it makes an industry out of them. And not that we need technology to feed our wicked desires, Amnon didn't have the internet, but technology, for all of its good, puts us in an age, I think, of unprecedented nurturing, or at least the potential to nurture the wicked desires that reside in us. We cannot blame the technology for it. It is right in our hearts. But certainly, it multiplies the temptation. And it multiplies the wickedness that dwells within us as we use that means of accessing more. And the New Testament, in any number of places, Ephesians 5, that we read earlier, warns repeatedly then about the covetousness, about desiring what is not yours, or the worldly passions that are out there. And so, there is in this text a warning about sexual immorality, and we could apply it across the board to its end act in a awful, horrendous form that we see in this text, to the fantasies of the heart, to the pornography that exists around us, and to the entertaining of all of that. Second, there's a warning in this passage against the abuse of power. Amnon abused a friendship. He brought Jonadab into this scheme. Jonadab of course, abused all sorts of things, abused his family connections, abused the wisdom, the craftiness that he had, and then ultimately Amnon abused his physical strength to overpower Tamar. And he probably realized that 
his position as a son of the king would protect him, perhaps from the repercussions of this, from the responsibilities that might be attached to it. David, in the past chapters, used his position to arrange his violation of Bathsheba. And in this passage, David also abuses his power. He abuses his power by abdicating the responsibility that he had. He gets angry, right? We read that. He gets angry, but he does nothing. Power and authority can be used rightly. David should have used it rightly. And it can be abused. It is an old story. It is not a new story. It is an old story, but of course, it is a contemporary story as well. It happens all the time. The warning that is here then is particularly those who have positions of authority or power or who have physical strength in a particular situation to be awfully careful because you are more likely to nurture and act on sinful desires of your heart when you have power and you have strength. It affords an opportunity to that sin. It ought be used in a different way, but the opportunity is there. Third, there is a warning in the final portion of this chapter against taking personal vengeance. David had the authority and the responsibility to bring justice upon Amnon, to put him to death. Absalom did not. Absalom did not have that authority. He let his hatred for his brother fester, and it grew into the desire for revenge and for murder. We could, we could consider Matthew 5 here, right? Matthew 5 and Jesus' words about murder and then about hating your brother. Absalom then schemes and plots in a way that parallels Amnon's. Right? The, 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 the plotting and the scheming in one sense in the first half of the book is for sexual immorality and then the plotting and the scheming that is in the second half of the chapter ends in murder. He has him killed. And thus, the evil desire has given birth to sinful planning and murder, and it has brought forth death. So be warned. Be warned about sexual immorality. Be warned about the abuse of power. Be warned about nurturing the hate that leads to personal vengeance. Now, let's take this passage and flip it over. What should have happened? What should have been done here? First, and I hope and I trust most obviously, Amnon needed to resist the temptation. He needed to, in the words that we find in the New Testament, resist the devil. He needed to, in the words that we find also in the New Testament, flee immorality. He should have fled. Think, for example, of Joseph. He should have acted like Joseph did. Flee the situation. Get out of the situation. 
He should have gone to the Lord. He should have confessed immediately when that desire was there. He should have pled for mercy and strength. He should have prayed the Lord's Prayer. He should have prayed, lead me not into temptation, Lord. He should have grabbed a brother, a friend, acknowledged his temptation to him, and asked not for help in executing a plan for the temptation, but against the temptation. He should have said, brother, I need your help. I'm struggling with this. He should have gone off to work. Or he should have gone off to war for Israel. He should have mortified the sin at the very beginning. And Jonadab. Jonadab, who comes into this situation as an awful character in the entirety of this situation, should have used his wisdom to come up to his friend and say, friend, don't do this. You cannot do this. In the same way, think, think of it this way. What Abigail did to David. Remember back from 1 Samuel? In 1 Samuel, when David hears about Nabal and Nabal's refusal to receive David's emissaries or to help out David's company of men, then David hears about that and David immediately sends out word, I'm going to take him and I'm going to take them out. Abigail intercedes and Abigail comes into this situation and says, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Nabal, the word means fool. He's a fool. The same word is here. You will be one of the fools in Israel if you do this thing, says Tamar. Jonadab needed to stop this. Brothers, and I'm, I'm going to say brothers here. I know that women can be tempted by this same thing. I'm going to say that this is more temptation for men. Brothers, the temptations that we face are real. They are multiplied in the age in which we live. At least it sure seems that way. Whatever it takes... Whatever it takes, we've got to flee. We've got to run from it. Secondly, what do we need to learn? All of the men in this story, father, brothers, friend, all of the men in this story should have seen the value, the preciousness, the personhood of this woman and of all women. They should have used their power, their authority, their strength, their position to protect her, to love her, to honor her, to celebrate her, to cherish her, to respect her. Men and boys, that is our calling. Brothers, that is our calling. To be that, to protect to defend, to honor. Tamar, as she is presented to us here, is a remarkably worthy woman, to use the idea from the book of Ruth. She has compassion. She's ready to serve. She's ready to organize. She's ready to work with her hands. She knows the law of God, and she seeks to steer her brother into a safe harbor, Get away from this sin. Don't do this thing that you are facing. She seeks to do all of that. She's an extraordinary woman, a woman worthy of honor, as are all image bearers. They should have given thanks to the Lord 
for this woman and treasured her. And none of them did. Not one of them did. Not her father, not her brothers, and not the friend. Quotes. Third, David in particular should have sought and executed justice on her behalf. It was his responsibility. He abdicates it as he did earlier in the book with Joab. Joab who had murdered. He abdicates his, abdicated his responsibility there and he does it again. And here, he seems to have forsaken the discipline of his own children, which is the exact sin of Eli that started back in 1 Samuel, who honored his sons above the Lord. And he doesn't discipline them. Fourth, and what should have been done? David and Absalom should have done everything possible once this occurred to comfort Tamar. They should have given to her their love and their compassion. They should have taken off the torn robe and replaced it with the best robe they had in the place. Put it on her and allow her grief, but surround her with the love of God. And instead, Absalom says, hold your peace, do not take this to heart. I, what a cold-hearted, foolish, I'd like to use other words, but I won't, response. And what more haunting phrase is there than this phrase that's, that's in verse 20. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. In a word then, what should have been done in this passage is they should have done good and not multiplied evil. They should have, in the words of Ephesians 5, been imitators of God, walking in love, walking as children of the light. And so then, before us today, what we've got is a warning. Don't do this. What not to do. What shouldn't be done, which is outrageous to do. And then flipping it over, by implication, we have a call to a glorious duty, a call to what we should do. Now those two things, the warning and the instruction, that's good and it is valuable for us. Take a look at the verse on the front of your bulletin. It is valuable for us, it is part of our training. Paul says this, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us. Okay, now here, the warning and the to-do. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. But the Bible tells us that for all of the great value that there is, and there is great value in saying to, to us 
don't do this, do this instead. For all the value of this, that knowledge is not enough, that instruction is not enough. It wasn't enough for Adam and Eve in a state of innocency. Here's all the good. You can do all of this. Here's, here's the good things to do in this world that I have created for you. Don't do this. And of course, they did that which was forbidden. It wasn't enough for Cain. God came to Cain and said, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. You have to master it. God whispering in his ear, I don't, maybe yelling in his ear, telling him that. It wasn't enough for Cain. Knowledge of what is right and wrong was not enough for David. And the warning that Tamar gives to Amnon is not enough to restrain the evil of that man. If it would have been enough, we wouldn't have needed a savior. If all we needed was a little bit of instruction to tell us a, a, a moral lesson in great virtues, do this, don't do that, then we wouldn't have needed a savior. But our state of sin and misery is much worse than most of us and most of the world realize. It is such that we need salvation by God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Only he can deliver us from the penalty that is due to us for the wickedness that resides in our heart, for the estate of sin from which that wickedness flows, and from the wickedness that actually flows out of our lives because of what exists in our hearts. And only he only he can deliver us from the power of indwelling sin. And that's why Paul continues in the way that he does in this passage on the front from Titus. We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to bring us back, to purchase us back from all of the lawlessness that we do, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Instruction to us is not enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is a sufficient Savior. He's our hope for forgiveness and mercy, for the restraint of our sinful inclinations, for the zealous pursuit of good works and for strength and progress in the ongoing war that is between the flesh and the spirit he is our hope for our final transformation he is our hope for justice and he is our comfort when by the sin of others or even by our own sin we have been battered and devastated. For those who do not believe in him, judgment awaits. There is no inheritance in the kingdom of God apart from the inheritance that is secured for us by the very Son of God and given to those who believe in him. For all who believe in him, he will not leave you desolate. He will take you into his house. He will put upon you the best robes. He will clothe you 
in righteousness. And when he does that, the sighing and the sorrow will flee. And everlasting joy will be upon your head. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk in your ways and help us to hear the word today. If it's a word of comfort that we need to hear, then give us the word of comfort. If it is a word of confrontation that we need to hear, then confront us. Grant us, grant us, by the power of Christ in us, to walk in the light as he is the light and is in the light. We pray this in his name. Amen.